Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Over the course of his long career, filmmaker Steve James has delved into the many ways in which people, frequently residents of his hometown of Chicago, are subject to the whims of history, society, and life itself. Whether detailing the struggles of young athletes in his watershed 1994 documentary Hoop Dreams, the heroic efforts of anti-violence activists in 2011's The Interrupters, or the daily experience of high schoolers in his 2018 series America to Me, James has combined sharp social analysis with striking warmth and sympathy for his subjects. His latest documentary, A Compassionate Spy, might seem on the surface to be a departure, The film tells the story of Ted Hall, a physics prodigy who, at age 18, was invited to join the Manhattan Project. Perceptive beyond his years, Ted found himself haunted by the implications of his work, and in 1944 made the decision to share nuclear secrets with the USSR. As compelling as this tale of espionage is, the film becomes, in the director's words, a love story, with Ted's widow Joan taking center stage as she recounts their life together, sharing the burden of her husband's secret. I sat down with the director to discuss the impetus behind A Compassionate Spy, his surprising use of recreations, and how the film might complement or offer a counter to the themes of another summer film about the Manhattan Project that you might have heard of. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Steve, thanks for joining. From uh, Where are you today? I'm in New York for the, uh, for the opening here in New York. Okay. Uh, do you have any Q&As? planned i imagine there's some yes q a's tonight and tomorrow and then then i go back to chicago for a couple so okay cool a compassionate spy is a really fascinating story from a political perspective from a historical perspective as a spy story and as a love story as a as a story about family but um I want to know how you came to find this story. Like, what was the impetus? Because a lot, it seems that a lot of the details of this story are told in the telling. You uncovered more information. You uncovered more details as you as you met people and discussed the story of Ted Hall with them. Can you talk a little bit about how you began this process and what started you off down this path? Yeah, so um, Dave Lindorf, who's a journalist, is really the impetus for this project. I met Dave when we interviewed him for Abacus Small Enough to Jail. He said he was an investigative reporter. Uh, Dave wrote a piece in, in this website called Counter, Counterpunch, which was kind of an appreciation of Ted Hall and what he'd done. And Joan Hall, you know, who survived Ted, his widow, wife, read it and reached out to Dave and expressed her appreciation for what he'd written they struck up a bit of a friendship and he he got to thinking, I think there's a really interesting film here. So he reached out to me and to Mark Mitten, who's also a producer on this project, because he knew us from Atlas. And he said, I think there's a film here. So in talking to Dave about it, reading about it, and then reading the, the book Bombshell, which was written in the late 90s, I thought, well, this is really fascinating. It's not like I had any intention of doing a film about nuclear bombs or anything, but is this a subject that you have been interested in the past? Like, did you have any knowledge of this world? No, I mean, I, I, I had an, I had some knowledge of that that period in history, and and you know, um, but but nothing terribly deep. Um, I've always been a character driven filmmaker. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in people and, and interested in people. I've kind of discovered when I look at my work, uh, I'm interested in people whose lives they are at a crossroads. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, a lot of times those are films that I'm following people in the midst of that process um, or that moment in their lives. This is obviously was not that, but you know, I was sufficiently intrigued enough to want to go to Great Britain and sit down with Joan over the course of three, four days and interview her to see if I thought there would be a film here. And I came away from it just completely taken with Joan as a as a person, as uh, a storyteller, uh, and as this love story between her and Ted. And so when I found out that there was also archival interviews with Ted before he passed away over 20 years ago where he spoke about all this. And I was like, okay, I, I really want to make this film. So the movie is about Ted, but Joan is really the beating heart of the film. But, you know, you have these archival interviews with him where you get a sense of who this person is. How did you discover that material and where did it come from? Because the, the question I kept asking was, was, isn't he implicating himself or isn't right. he opening himself up to prosecution yeah <laughs> just by giving these interviews even if they're not published you know he could kind of, it's kind of a dangerous move right so yeah there are, there are fundamentally three interviews with ted in the in the, in the film and the, the only three i know of and what what was great was that joan had copies of all of this that's how i found out about them Okay. Uh, two of two of them. One of them. It's a short one, but it's you know, it's it's the interview that we end the film on. He's sitting on a couch and he's talking to a, an activist on on the issue of nuclear war, and he gave a brief interview to that person. The other one that involves Joan, she's part of it, was one that they did recorded with a lawyer for posterity, um, because they just felt like they they needed to do this. You know, at the time these interviews were happening, Ted was suffering from cancer and Parkinson's. And and I think there was a sense that, um, you know, if they were going to record any of this for posterity, or at least for themselves, that this was the time to do it. The third interview, interestingly enough, was done by CNN, BBC for this series called Cold War. And what's, what's kind of interesting about that is they sat down with Ted for about three hours and they use all of a minute and a half in the series. But Joan had a copy of the whole interview. Oh, wow. And I think what, what she didn't remember, but I'm guessing that part of the condition of him doing the interview was we want to have a copy of it. You know, whatever you do with it, we want a copy of it. So thank God she got it. And we were able to rooted out at CNN and, and use, you know, much more of it than ever saw the light of day. So to your uh, question of like, why would he say these things at the point in time where he granted these interviews, he had been exposed uh, in the media. Um, you know, when they declassified the Venona documents 50 years after all of this, that's when the press first got wind of Ted Hall as having been a spy that led to a number of articles that we feature at some point in the film. So, you know, if, if the FBI was going to um, come after him, they, I think they, they, they would have done it uh, at that point. And I think, you know, partly in response to the press that was generated 
which was mostly negative towards Ted, he felt compelled to get his story out there with the CNN and with the bombshell authors. You know, he he gave them pretty full cooperation. Did you reach out to any, um, to the FBI or any law enforcement agencies to see like if they had, you know, I'm just wondering what their perspective is on on all of this as this unfolds, especially in the 90s towards the end of his life. So what I did get access to um, was the FBI notes uh, from the interrogations, very detailed, very detailed notes of the interrogation, which I used as a basis for those reenactment scenes in, in where they're questioning Ted. They, they, they were all grounded in those in those FBI documents. I didn't reach out to anyone to interview with the FBI. I would have loved to have interviewed the detective who was the lead detective, but he had died a few years earlier. Um, so he was not available. Uh, but otherwise, I didn't reach out because no one that I knew of from that time was still around to to address it. You mentioned those interrogation scenes, and they're kind of examples of Ted Hall's bravery, but also resourcefulness, I think. Can you talk a little bit about what, over the course of making this film, where did this resourcefulness come from? Because from a very young age, he was 18 years old, right? And as uh, the millions of viewers of Oppenheimer know, you know, there were many people working on this project, much older, much more mature, who didn't have the foresight or the courage, maybe, to do what Ted Hall did. Well, I have some thoughts on it. I mean, you know... I, there's a moment in the film bef- before he even got to to Los Alamos um, where um, Joan and her daughters are sitting around the kitchen table and they're reading letters that Ted wrote uh, when he was at Harvard, as, as, as he spelled it. And at the time he's writing these letters to his brother, Ed, he's 16 or 17, okay, and he's at Harvard. Of all places, his brother is also sort of a brilliant engineer, right? A missile engineer who yes. designed the the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, just sort of an amazing family for sure. Sorry, yeah, continue. no, but but so yeah, brilliant family. So he's writing these letters where he is not smitten with Harvard. <laughs> he's talking about what's wrong with their educational philosophy, and you know what? He's right. He's right, and he's sixteen or seventeen at the time so this is a this is a guy that was you know was unbelievably intelligent and insightful at an extremely young age and yeah i mean i I, when i saw the film oppenheimer which i enjoyed a lot um it really dawned on me that that oppenheimer himself what he came to sort of realize and 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 that tortured him about what he had done happened after they dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Ted foresaw a lot of this even before the Trinity test. He was he was 19 years old when he went back for his birthday celebration to and decided he was going to pass these secrets. And even though he didn't have any access to uh, you know anybody with intelligence in, in this community in the tel- intelligence community he certainly wasn't talking to the president he wasn't talking to Leslie Groves he was not connected but he still managed to glean and, and imagine what was going to become of all this that they were doing and I think he did it with a remarkable amount of insight 
and he was all of 19, 18 and 19. Yeah, I wonder if his youth was a factor in that, just being like unable or unwilling to kind of foresee the potential consequences. Yeah, and I think I think that Ted, you know, Ted came from a, a very strong left background. His his family was from Russia, um, you know, and I think that it gave him. He was Jewish. She it gave him a perspective at Los Alamos, and you know, he was a junior physicist, so he probably had more time. <laughs> who had been conscripted into the army conscripted <laughs> you know he had more time to ruminate about these things than oppenheimer did i'm sure but you know he was just precociously brilliant and and then when the fbi came calling you know he had already anticipated that such a thing might happen and had already talked to savi about what they should do savi Sachs was his kind of college friend who he collaborated with on sharing secrets right yeah helped him pass the secrets and so you know, so Ted goes in for that first day of, of interrogation from the FBI, and they're really pushing him. And they seem to know a lot, right? <laughs> and yet, he doesn't really give up anything. He goes home over the weekend, he discusses it with his wife and with Savi, and decides that he's going to no longer cooperate, and that if they have anything, they'll arrest him. And so when he gets up in that second day of the interrogation, and walks out and they don't stop him i think that's when he realized that he really did have much more control over his fate in this situation than you know it's interesting klaus fuchs who was featured briefly in oppenheimer and was the spy and we we mentioned him in our film the british intelligence did the same thing with him that the fbi did with ted and klaus broke and gave it up and as a result he served 14 years in prison Right, or you have the mirror, the mirror image of the Rosenbergs in this film set up as kind of like a counterfactual of what could have yeah. happened to Ted, and he seems to see himself very much in them. And and it would have happened to him, and 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 I wouldn't have been surprised if Joan wouldn't have been executed too, because you know Ethel Rosenberg was executed for Julius Rosenberg spying. Ethel really didn't do anything; she just knew about it, much like Joan after the fact knew about what Ted did. So Yeah, and helped helped him not give himself up, really, yes. right? Crucially. Saved him from himself. <laughs> right. You know, another point that the film makes is that he didn't do this to help the Soviet Union. He didn't do this out of any solidarity with uh Stalin or Stalinism or the Soviet Union as a nation, but rather as a way to balance what he thought would become like an international imbalance of power. Can you talk a little bit about how Joan thought about that idea? I mean, was this was this an idea that you understood to be his motivation from the beginning of the film, or is that something that you discovered in the process of making the film? No, I mean, I knew from, well, really from reading the Bombshell book, um, I knew that, um, that that was his rationale. Um, what's interesting to me is, is that... Um, you know, Ted, and and you see this in the film, Ted, Ted came to have misgivings about what he'd done, right? He, he, once it became crystal clear to him um, that the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state and that Stalin had done a lot of awful things, he did second guess himself on what he had done. And what's interesting is, is that Joan never second guessed what he'd done. Um, she remained steadfastly 
committed to the fact that he did what he did for all the right reasons. And, and I think he did too. I mean, the film is clearly very sympathetic to Ted in telling his story. Um, and, and I know that some people looking at this film want, wanted a strong pushback to Ted's reasoning for what he did. It's almost as if they want to lay the coal, the, the uh, arms race at Ted's feet in some of the stuff I've read, which, you know, is a little unfair because, you know, the Soviet Union, Ted helped the Soviet Union get the bomb earlier. They were going to get the bomb. So there was, there was never a question that the Soviet Union was going to have the bomb too. And then the question was when, really? Unless the U.S. decided to preemptively blow them off the face of the earth, which was certainly something they were thinking about. You also do make a point of showing footage of the aftermath of those bombings. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah, and I was, it was interesting in, in seeing Oppenheimer that, you know, Christopher Nolan made the choice to not show that, which I totally understood. And I actually thought he handled it if you're going to make that choice, I thought he handled it in a, in a, in a quite deft way. Right. Um, but I felt like in our film, I mean, I, we made our film before Oppenheimer came out. Um, and we, we, I felt like it was important for people to see some of that and understand that and understand the geopolitics that were going on around the decision to drop and that there was resistance. There wasn't just resistance from scientists, which there was clearly, there was also resistance from General Eisenhower, you know, um, and others. And, and I felt like it was important to know that. And then of course, to see what we went ahead and did, um, because it, it, because to me, it, it only reinforced Ted's greatest fears that prompted him to do what he did. And, and when he talks about the people's, you know, the songs coming out about, you know, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, that terrible song that we feature and hearing and, and people celebrating around the jukebox and, uh, and, and this terrible thing had happened. I just felt like it was important for the audience to have had a real sense of what had happened, what he had seen had happened and, and to understand where that came from. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I want to talk a little bit about the formal decisions you make in this film, because I know that as a filmmaker, you often kind of tend to work in an observational mode. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to feature recreations in this film? Because I think it's not something you've ever done before, right? No, no. Uh, I've never felt a need to do that. I felt the need to try that here uh, for, for, I think, at least a couple of reasons. One is, you know, hearing these very specific stories first from Joan and then seeing in the TED interviews that he also speaks about a number of them in a very personal way 
I became convinced that, um, you know, there was that it would be great in some way to try and bring them to life in some way, because there would be no way to visualize them otherwise. I mean, a lot of times in archivally driven films, if someone's telling a personal anecdote from the past, you know, the filmmaker, if they don't literally have the footage that supports it, they they're able to kind of fake it <laughs> with archival footage that sort of appears like it could be that person and it's in that context and they can get away with it. There would have been no way to do that with these very specific stories in this case, not effectively. And I didn't want to even try to fake that. So that was that was one of the decisions was I, I felt it was important to bring them to life. I also wanted the audience and 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 I was thinking in particular of younger audience members that might see this film. I wanted I wanted people to have a real sense that these were really young people who were dealing with this and making these decisions and doing what they did. Um, you know, because it's you look at a 91 year old woman speaking to you and you look at Ted, who was in his 70s when he's speaking to you. And it would be easy to kind of think of it as just like a history lesson uh, instead of uh, something that really happened and was quite palpable and real for them as young people. And so that was the other reason I made the decision to do it. It's potentially dangerous, though. I mean, there's an element of it where you're doing recreations that you could easily kind of slip into like unsolved mysteries territory. Yeah. How did you approach that so that you kind of kept it grounded in reality or in the historical record, I guess? Yeah, well, at, at first, you know, I was thinking, at first I was thinking that I would try to do what I've seen done where, you know, it's very, very totally subjective. It's uh, backs of heads. It's a lot of hands. It's faces out of focus. Um you know, and, and I thought, you know, that's how we should do it um, to kind of keep it at a remove in a way. Um, but then with my DP, I just decided fairly late in the process, I just said, you know what, I think we should just go for it. Uh, I mean, let's just go for it. And, <laughs> and so we did. And so I started to write some some dialogue. Uh, for them to say, and I and I encourage the actors to also improvise off of that written dialogue, and and we just decided to to kind of go for it. I was the editor of the film too, and I I knew that I wasn't going to use it all. Whatever we got, I wasn't going to use it all. It wasn't going to be just a standalone scene. Uh, and so, what I wanted to try and do, which you know, uh, is to sort of always have them grounded in the recollections from Joan and Ted as a constant kind of, not just guide through the scene, but a reminder that this is real, um, that, that we're not going off on flights of fancy with these reenactments and just trying to create some, some drama that, that these were, that these, you could believe in these reenactments, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, whether whether they, you know, they don't work for everybody. There's there in our world of documentary, there's a I think there's a there's a kind of, you know, there's a there's an inherent distrust of recreation. Um, they don't work for everybody, but you know, fuck it. We See, do. 
<laughs> Good attitude, I think, to, <laughs> to creative work. I first, you know, I have to admit, yeah, I was a, like, oh, a recreation of this like scene of young love. Like, what is yeah. what is this going to be right. like? Right. Suddenly, we're in Jules and Jim territory. <laughs> right. Did you see the Frederick Wiseman film, A Couple? That came out no, um, I um, last year. It's like a, he uses the actor reading from the diaries of Tolstoy's wife. And she just is reading these letters to Tolstoy and from this woman's diaries, standing in kind of picturesque gardens and dressed in period garb. But uh, your recreation sort of reminded me of that in that they were abstractions of the historical record in a way. Yeah. And so you more got like a, a sense of the emotions that were going on and really like the recreations in this film really draw out the love story and place that in the foreground in front of this kind of tale of international cloak and dagger espionage. Yeah. And, and when I came away from that first interview with Joan, I said to my colleagues, I said, yeah, this is a love story as much as it's a story of espionage. I mean, a, a big motivation for me wanting to make this film. Yes. Ted Hall's story is extraordinary. But Joan is extraordinary, and this marriage that she had and her commitment to him is, to me, equally extraordinary. And for the longest time, my working title of this film was Ted and Joan. That was going to be the title. Because I really felt like this was that story as much as it's any other story. Yeah, I mean, I think really that's what makes this more than a retelling of kind of a small event in history, ultimately, you know, is that centering on Joan, because she's such a compelling figure. Yeah. Let's talk about how you decided to kind of center her. Really, I mean, I know she was kind of the, you had no choice in yeah. some respects, but I think like the decision she had to make, the sacrifices she had to make, how did you decide to kind of weave those into the story in the way that you did at the expense of probably what was the initial impulse, which was to tell the story of espionage? I mean, here's the thing, Joan was very much like Ted. She was brilliant. You know, she went she went off to the University of Chicago when she was 15. Like, yeah, like when she was a teenager too, right? Yeah. Yeah, and she met Ted when she was 17 and they were they were married by the time she was 18. And and you know, this is a woman who says in the film that she had made a decision she wasn't going to get married for 10 years because she wanted to really I think have a, not only have a career but enjoy life and she, you know, in the fullest and you know, so she was very much out of the mainstream of women of that time and of her age. And and so in a lot of ways, she was the perfect mate for Ted. Um, you know, they they really were sort of made for each other. And 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 even though she didn't know him when he was a spy she made this commitment to him knowing that he was a spy. Do you think that his spying made her more committed? Was appealing? <laughs> it might have. Because she seems somebody who's driven by causes. You know, she wants to be involved. Yes. She says this. She wants to be involved in communal yes. causes, in group work. Yeah, no, you, you could be right. I mean, I think the way she talks about it, she at first was sort of like, well, why? Why, did, why would you do that? But as soon as he explained it, she was on board. <laughs> She's like down for the rest of her life. More and yeah, and she, it wasn't like she said, well, I need to think about this. Um, and she even says, she, she makes a, a bit of a joke, but I don't think it's a joke. She says, he could have killed someone for all I cared. I just, 
you know, I, I loved him and I wanted, and this is what I wanted. And so, um, you know, I think that, you know, when you look at Boria's family, um, uh, or Sabi's family, which I was able to do his, his son and daughter, mm-hmm. they seem to have like a little bit of bitterness towards their father, right? Bitterness. And it was a much more, I think it was a much more difficult experience for them growing up. Right. I mean, Sabi wasn't able to go on from this and prosper in the way that Ted did. Their family life was more fraught. And I thought it was very important to sort of be able to contrast this to, and I, and I attribute the sort of strength of Ted and Joan's family to that relationship that their daughters who came through that, I mean, they managed to keep it a secret um, from their daughters until they felt like they had to tell it. And interestingly enough, Savi told Sarah, his daughter, when she was 12, (laughs) you know, so, you know, I felt like it was, you know, in every respect at the center of this film is this marriage, is this relationship, even though the spying took place before they ever knew each other. And I, and so finding a way to tell the story in that way was an interesting challenge because it's the reason I decided to start the film with them and use him telling her what he had done as the springboard back to us now learning what he really had done because it felt like it was important to kind of even look at his past through the lens of their marriage. Yeah. As we've said many times, I think the film really is based on this marriage and really is about how Ted was the spy, sure, but he probably would have gone to jail or been executed had it not been for Joan's support and presence in his life. Absolutely. You know, at at one point I reached out to Michael Mirapool, who's the son of the Rosenbergs, because I wanted wanted him to see what we had done around the portrayal of his... Mm parents right and he wrote back to me that you know he appreciated seeing it he thought it was powerful and he said and joan's absolutely right if if ted had come forward they just both would have been executed too oh that's interesting um makes me wonder were there any interviews or moments that got left on the cutting room floor i'm wondering if you had interviewed michael i made a decision not to interview him because i i didn't think it was ultimately germane you know one of the things I was very conscious of going into this was is that I did not want to interview many people if I could help it. Um, if there was a way, if there had been, a, I'm sure there's a way to do it, but if there was a way for me to feel satisfied with telling the story without any experts, I've done it. Um, but I felt like I needed some experts to not only fill in parts of the story, but also to give some grounding to Ted's views, Joan's views, and the decisions they made in that history at that time, or I would have audience watching it and going, well, how, how do I know to, to believe any of this, right? So, but I, but I was determined not to have, to have as few of experts as possible. And Dave, the, the, one of the producers, he kept suggesting other people we might could talk to and I would be like and some of them we'd talk to and I'd go no I don't really want to interview <laughs> I don't think we need that so in terms of what I would have in retrospect I guess in retrospect I wish that among the people I did talk to is that I had um included maybe more of them answering 
the critics of Ted, uh, Ted's decisions more uh, to give a fuller context. Ted, you know, I feel I have Joan weighing in on it, and I have Ted talking about his misgivings and and what he feels. I think I didn't anticipate that. Um, you know, some some viewers, and I and I get this that some viewers would want all of that to be laid out more because again i think there's a tendency to think that ted somehow gave the soviets the bomb uh, even though the film is clear that he just helped them get it sooner there's a there's a kind of neat it's funny with americans i think there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction that oh my god if you do anything to help the soviet union it's just wrong it's just wrong um, and 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 I totally understand that in the context of today with Putin having invaded Ukraine and everything that's going on. I totally understand that point of view, but um, I wish I had maybe did, done some more handholding around that for the viewer. Well, in your defense, I think it's fairly clear, and the experts that you include really make it very clear the consequences of not having that kind of balance that yeah. Ted was striving for. Just one or two more questions, I think. But um, I wanted to ask about the editorial process, which you alluded to earlier. But um, I know that you often involve subjects or rather get feedback from subjects. Yes. What was that like in this, on this film? It's funny. With, you know, with some films, it's really simple and, and there's not that much to it. And on other films, it's a, it's a very involved process. This was a very involved process because... Uh, it may shock you to hear that Joan's very opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> and so are her daughters, um, Ruth and Sarah. And of course, this is their story. And so I totally understood it. But they, they weren't just opinionated as it related to personal parts of the story. They were also strongly opinionated about the portrayal of the history and and everything around it. And mm -hmm. So it was a really fascinating journey, and it was it was way way more engaged than the typical film. But the film got better as a result. But um, you know, there was one. This is there was one. There's a couple of situations that that stand out that were particularly interesting to me. One was um, in one of the in in the in the recreation where they're on their way to the party and they pass by Sing Sing. Uh, I had a show, when Ted turns on the music and it happens to be um, this Mahler symphony that, that meant so much to them. Um, in in one of the shots that I was using for the longest time, Ted has a, a a little bit of a smile on his face because my my thinking was you know he hears this song before it dawns on him that they're passing Sing Sing, and so he he. You know, it's a it's it's a song he loves, uh, and for the longest time I had that shot in there. And every time they would we would talk, they would say, "You got to take that shot out of there." It's like he wouldn't have smiled that day. The Rosenbergs were being executed, you know, on and on and on. And and then I finally, I mean, I was an idiot. Finally, I went back. I thought I had picked the absolute best take. I went back and I found another take that that where it was more, more circumspect. And and the, when they saw it, they were like, thank you. <laughs> it's like a uh, it's like a Hollywood producer. Exactly. <laughs> they but thank God they they dug in their heels because you know it made me finally go back and, and change it. The other thing which is more substantial was 
um, there's that moment late in the film when um, when Sarah breaks down and when she's talking about when it dawned on her and then she asked her dad, did, what did, did you do this? And it's a very, you know, I think it's a very important moment in the film. And um, when it happened, when we filmed it, Sarah was self-conscious about the crying and she said, I don't want that in the film. And I said at the time, which, you know, we documentary filmmakers often do. I said, well, let's, you know, let's not worry about that now. But I, but I needed to give her the assurance that ultimately I could tell I needed to give her the assurance that ultimately if she really, really, really didn't want it in there, I would take it out. But I was like, in my heart, I was going, we got to keep it. We'll, 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 we'll work it out. Cause it's, it's too yeah. important moment. Right. Well, that became a source of debate in the edit for a long time because she kind of stuck to her guns, even though both Ruth and and um, Joan told me independently that they they thought it was fine to be in there, but they but they stood by her because they felt like they needed to stand by her. And finally, I got through to her that this moment wasn't a moment of weakness it was a mo moment of great family resilience and strength and and love and she she agreed to let it be in thank god um but that's that's the process i mean I, in that case i had told her i would take it out if she really insisted i don't usually do that in a you know i don't usually set myself up for that but i felt like i had to in that case because she was so Getting her to even participate in the film was a challenge because she's a very shy person. Um, so I felt like I needed to, you know, I needed to honor her needs in that in that situation if if it came to that. I think that's a good place to wrap it up on this moment of what did you call it? Family strength and resilience. Yes. It's one of the takeaways of this film, for sure. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Clinton. Enjoyed talking. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.